joy, 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 joy down in my heart, down in my heart. So I don't know. I know Jake mentioned. I think I heard some smart comments about Polk County and warehouses and. Um, <laughs> What I, I didn't hear, I try to zone him out when he does that because I'm from Polk County, but the, um, I don't know if he mentioned this. One of the reasons we're moving this stuff out of the classrooms is just because obviously some growth, but also the children's group, Creekside Kids, is growing quite a bit, and we need more classrooms for that. Um, what I don't know if he mentioned is because of that, we also need more people who are willing to volunteer inside Creekside Kids. So we have never been a church that has forced you to do anything. We don't even pass an offering plate. Um, But we're almost at the point where we're going to force you or at least strong arm you into working in the children's ministry, at least volunteering, because we have the same folks volunteering every week. And I think they're getting a little, um, as I would, if I was holding my screaming nine-month-old like they probably are right now. you know, you just get a little worn out. So if you, if you would be willing, see Jake, myself, um, you know, any of the leadership team and just say, hey, I'd be, I'd be willing to work. We background check all, all people who are working back there. Um, it does not have to be weekly. You might do once every two months. You know, if we get enough workers, you might have to do it once a quarter. So it wouldn't be, I don't think, that large of a commitment time-wise, but you just say, hey, I'm willing to do that. Um, it could be elementary age. Look, I don't want to hold any crying babies, but I'll work with elementary age. You know, we can, you can kind of specify where you want to work. You might get my other crying kid in the elementary age, but um, anyway, let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for today. Thank you for the time we can spend studying your word. Pray that you would speak through me, Lord, and that I would just be behind everything. I would disappear, Lord, and they would see you. In your name, amen. So I know this might not shock or come as a shock to some of you, but I was not exactly the best kid growing up. Um, my mom's not here to validate that. I mean, all, all kids, to be fair, all kids have their issues. Would you agree? Um, all kids have their issues, but some of us just take a little longer to find our way. Can I get an amen? amen. Uh, thank you. So I grew up going to church. It was a pretty conservative church. I, as I look back, um, I would say maybe even borderline legalistic. It's kind of hard for me to, to gauge. Obviously, your childhood, you're looking at things a little differently. All I remember from childhood, and this goes for my own house and my own church, was just a lot of rules. Okay, um, I probably needed those rules, but there was a lot of things you couldn't do. And I, don't, I didn't really understand why you couldn't do them. I just knew that good people did these things, and good people didn't do these things. Okay, so if you were to come up to me as a, when I was a kid and say, Shale, Tell me how your relationship with Jesus is going. I, you know, I would, I would gauge that, not based on my prayer life. I wouldn't gauge it based on whether or not I was abiding in the Lord, walking with the Spirit, whether or not I had a desire to share my faith. I would base that on a mental, I'd do a quick mental list of the rundown, the do's and the don'ts, and I would kind of gauge my walk with Christ based on how I was doing, how I was behaving. And maybe that was some of you, but for me, growing up, my... You know, my, my calling myself a Christian, let me say it this way, wasn't about a relationship with Jesus or a heart that was set on him. It was a set of rules. Okay, that, that's just, I'm speaking for me only, not anybody else. All right, and that can be a very exhausting way to live. Okay, it's an exhausting way to walk with Christ where you're, that's, that's kind of your entire focus. Jake mentioned something last week we were going through, we're studying David and Bathsheba. We preached through books of the Bible, January, the second week of January, we started in Samuel, and we've just been working our way straight through. So we were in 2 Samuel chapter 11 last week, where David and Bathsheba, where David sees Bathsheba, and the rest is history, and we're in chapter 12 today. But Jake said something as he was kind of introing that passage last week, and here's what he said. He said, when Jesus came on the scene, one of the first things he did is he challenged people to evaluate their hearts. One of the first things Jesus did when he came on the scene is he, Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, Matthew 6, Matthew 7, we call it the Sermon on the Mount. One of the first things he did kind of kicked off his ministry, challenging people to evaluate their hearts. He's basically like, you know, you've heard that it was said you shouldn't commit adultery, but I tell you, if you've looked at a woman lustfully, you've already committed adultery with her in your heart. Like you've heard it was said, do not murder. But I'm going to tell you, if, you've, if you hate someone in your heart, basically you've already done that. 
And that would have been, you know, for those of us who are list people, for those of us, you know, I'm not a list person in real life, but when I'm, you know, when I'm thinking of these do's and don'ts, if that's how you're, you're gauging your walk and Jesus comes on the scene and Jesus says, here's, you know, here's the deal. I want you to look at your heart. I don't want you necessarily to look at the outside. Now, the outside behavior is important. Would we agree? But, I mean, it's obviously important. But Jesus says, I want you to look at your heart. Here's the deal. And what, he, what he's doing, if you read Matthew 5, Matthew 6, Matthew 7, and you read all through the Gospels, what Jesus is trying to show people, encourage people, is say, look, you can't do this alone. You know the law? You know the law that you were given? It was kind of to point out the fact that you can't do it alone. It was to point you to someone else. Point out your sin. You know, your hearts need to be set on me. And we're going to walk through this life together. If you're a believer, I'm going to give you my Holy Spirit. He's going to comfort you and guide you and convict you. And, you know, we're going to walk through this life together. And so when I was, you know, that's kind of how I grew up. Do's, don'ts, you know, just that was kind of my focus. It was very exhausting. You're in high school. There's all these things pulling you off. I mean, there's always things in life pulling you off course. But, you know, through the high school lenses, there was always these things pulling me off course. And I remember freshman year... I went away to school in the great state of Alabama, all right? I did not go to Alabama, thank the Lord, but the great state of Alabama. Um, and I remember coming home during one of my breaks. I went to Sanford University in Birmingham, and none of, my, um, none of my friends, of course, went to Sanford from my school. So I would come home, and they, they all kind of went and did their own thing. Some of them stayed local. Some of them went away. But anyway, you'd come home on these breaks, and you'd meet up with your old friends. And, you know, together, collectively, I would say... We'd always kind of been troublemakers. Um, I know that's all relative, right? But we'd always been troublemakers. We'd partied. And I, I would say we'd never gotten anything too outrageous. Okay? And I can still remember going home on a break from college. And while I was away, while I was gone, my friends that I hung out with the most had gotten to drugs. And so I remember coming home, got back into town, and we go out. I remember getting, you know, hey, we'll pick you up. Went, picked up, you know, they pull up to the house, go out, get in the car, open the passenger door, and as I'm getting in, I see drugs sitting there on the seat. And in that moment, there's, there's a battle that started in my mind, right? You see something, and then there's a battle in my mind. And before the night was out, I'd given in. Now, it probably goes back to where my heart was already at. You know, a lot of the things I was already struggling with, all the things I was already doing, and that was just kind of the final straw, the final action, the final decision. But the crazy thing is that one decision, that one decision that started by opening that door, seeing those drugs, thinking, pondering, wondering, well, what are the ramifications of this? We're going to get all the things that went through my head. Based on that one decision of seeing those, it would lead me down a path that I never thought was possible. If I'm honest, never thought that's where I was, where I would be. And you know, here's the thing: as I as I think through, I look back now, and I'm like, well, why did I do that? Right? Why why did I make that? I mean, this is me analyzing me. Why would I have done that? You've done that, right? You've made stupid decisions, and you look back and you're like, why did I do that? Like, why did I make that decision? So as me, as I'm looking back, older me, looking back and saying, why did I do that? I think one of, the, one of the reasons I walked down that path is I was just, I was tired of trying to follow Jesus through the lens of right and wrong and right and wrong and right and wrong and right and wrong. My heart wasn't set on him. When your heart's not set on him, it is so difficult to walk with him. When you're not in the word, when you're not praying, you're not disciplined, you're not fast, you're, not, you're just not doing the spiritual disciplines, it is exhausting to have a relationship with the Lord, to try to follow him and not do any of those things. And that's where I was. And so I just gave up. In that moment, it was like this, this ball had started. I just gave up. And over the course of the next five years, I was 18 at the time. Over the course of the next five, six years, I'd get kicked out of college. I would get evicted from multiple apartments for partying. All right, I got kicked out of my parents' house because they found out what was going down. They started giving me drug tests. So I got kicked out of my parents' house multiple times. I lived on couches. I lived with friends. And I remember calling my parents at 23, 23, five, six years in. And I was like, you know what? I'm screwed up. I, I, I don't know how else to say it. I'm screwed up. I drink every day. I do drugs every day. I got nowhere to stay. Can I move home? Like, I just, I, you know, and at first they were like, not a chance. Like, you know, this is, my parents are all about tough love. And it was like, there is not a chance. We've been down, I mean, they, they gave me chances. Don't get me wrong. They gave me chances. But, you know, I, I and, you know, in their defense, I'd blown them many, 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 many times. 
And they're like, there's not a chance. And so we went back and forth, back and forth. And after much deliberation, they let me move home on two conditions. One, random drug testing, which they did. And two, I had a curfew. 23. I'm like, seriously? And they were like, we know you. Seriously? <laughs> and so I had a curfew. I'd be home every night. Couldn't stay the night out ever because they knew I would just stay the night out, do whatever I wanted to do and come home two days later. And so they're like, nope, curfew, random drug testing. And so that's what I did. And, it, it, and the Lord used that, used that situation to kind of point me on a path of where I needed to be, where he wanted me to be. But it's, what's mind-blowing to me is how I can look back now and I can follow one sin and one decision. I'm not saying there wasn't a lot of other nonsense going on. But how I can follow one sin, like one decision, and it can seemingly take your life and spin it out of control. My own decision. Nobody tricked me into doing it, right? It was my decision. You're plugging along, you're minding your own business, all of a sudden something catches your eye. That's usually how it starts. Something catches your eye, and you're intrigued, you ponder, you contemplate, the wheels begin to turn. Hmm, do I want to do that? Do I not want to do that? And these thoughts, they move from here, your eyes, to your mind, and they go from your mind to your heart. They take root in your heart, and sometimes this can happen in a matter of an hour. Sometimes it can happen quicker than that. But they just take root in your heart, and all of a sudden, Jesus isn't quite as precious as he once was. Something else is now vying for your attention. Something else is now wanting to be front and center in your life, and now you're kind of going to do anything you can to get it. And that's, that's kind of how it was for me. All right, eventually you give in, and the crazy thing is, it's, it's for me anyway, it seemed to start off pretty innocently. All right, Bob, I'm going to go out with some friends, right? I'm home from college, having fun, going to go out and hang out with my friends. All right, I'll see you later. I'll be back later on tonight. You run out the door, you jump in the car, you move something that's on the seat, you realize it's a bag of drugs, and the wheels start turning. The wonders, the what ifs, the... And all of a sudden, that battle begins, and that's, that's how sin loves to infiltrate, Use it through your mind, use it through your eyes, it infiltrates, it takes root, it does its thing. Last week we saw David, 2 Samuel chapter 11, we saw David give in to temptation, right? A sin that would eventually lead him down a path that if you ask King David where we are today in chapter 12, he said, David, did you ever think in a million years that you would be right here right now? Knowing everything that happened in chapter 11. Do you think you would be right here, right now, and King David, I can assure you, would say, never in a million years. Never in a million years did I think this would, that one decision, that one moment of giving in to temptation would lead me down the path of where I am right now. And it started kind of innocently. Chapter 11, verse 2, it happened late one afternoon when David arose from his couch, was walking on the roof of the king's house that he saw from the roof a woman bathing and the woman was very beautiful. Starts here. Works its way to your mind. And if you're careful, or you're not careful, it makes its way to your heart. That's usually how it works. We see, we think, we lust, we act. Sometimes it happens all very quickly. You know, I wonder, I wonder and this is just a really bad example, but I, I'm, you know, I'm going to give you an example that everybody might be able to, to understand. Oh, see that car right there. There's no way in a million years I can afford that car. There's no way in a million years I should be doing this. There's no way in a million years I should be looking at that woman. There's no way in a million years I should be doing this. And all of a sudden you're like, well, maybe I could. Maybe it really wouldn't be that big of a deal. Maybe the ramifications wouldn't be that big. Maybe I could justify it if I do this, this, and this. I quit doing this. I quit going here. I quit spending money here. Um, what if I go on, you know, whatever. Do this, do this. My wife doesn't. You can justify it all you want. Starts here. Moves into your mind. Catches your eye. You start thinking about it. It starts taking root. It becomes an obsession. And then you'll do whatever you can. Doesn't matter. Whatever you can do to do it, you're going to do it. All, all morality goes out the window. And that's, you know, it's, I, I've seen it over and over again in my life, and that's where David is right now. The temptation in chapter 11 caught his eye, literally. And at that moment, he had a decision to make. He saw the woman bathing. Does he go back inside? Oh, ah. Does he go back inside? He's already got multiple wives. I don't remember the number at this time. Six, seven wives? I'm not saying that's right. God did not, you know... <laughs> say he could do that. He did it anyway. He's got six or seven wives. He could go back into the house and say, shouldn't have seen that. I'm going to go back in and, you know, talk to my wife. Whatever he says, whatever he thinks he needs to do to deal with the lust, he could have done it at his own household. Would you agree? 
He could have done it in his own household, but he accidentally saw the woman bathing. And that's not the issue. The issue is not the fact that he accidentally saw her bathing. The issue is everything he did after that. Everything he did after that, right? Asking her, who's that lady over there? Who who is that? Come here, come here. Who's that lady? Oh, Bathsheba. Bring, Bring her to me. She goes into his chambers, takes advantage of her. You could argue he raped her. Took her in his chamber, sleeping with her. She's pregnant. Now what's he do? Oh, she's pregnant. Tries to cover it up. All right, let's call Uriah home from the front lines. Let's bring him in. Hey, go to your wife. Um, your wife probably wants to see you. Go to your wife. And he won't do it. He's like, that's not the right thing to do. My men are in battle. I'm not going to do that. I'm going to stay here at your house. I'm going to sleep here. So what's he do? There's no way this guy's going to go back and sleep with his wife. So I'm going to go ahead and take care of this the way I think it should. He writes a letter to Joab. Uriah, go give this to Joab. Joab takes the letter. Joab goes. Joab opens, or Uriah takes the letter. Joab opens it. Basically kill Uriah. And he's killed. Along with 17 other men who are with him huge number of people that are having to deal with David's lust issues. And so the last thing we read in chapter 11, verse 27, but the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. The thing that David had done displeased the Lord. So as we dive into chapter 12, probably a year has passed. We don't know exactly how much time has passed, but Bathsheba has had her child. So obviously nine months have passed. We're assuming the baby's not a, like a couple days old. So we're going to guess about a year has passed since that has happened, since that offense David's affair. All right? Clearly David has not repented because the Lord's about to send Nathan to him. So David probably thinks he has successfully covered this up. We're obviously speculating, but it's pretty clear that he thinks he's covered this up. The people around him are either unaware, his, you know, his, his court are either unaware, or they just don't care, they're not going to do anything about it, maybe they're afraid to say something to him. But here's the thing, God's aware. And God's not going to sit idly by and pretend nothing happened. Because it displeased the Lord. So verse 1, chapter 12, first phrase, And the Lord sent Nathan to David. That's a pretty scary thought. And the Lord sent Nathan to David. All right, now Nathan comes in and he tells him a little parable. I, you know, I, most prophets they just let you have it, right? Most prophets, when you see the, when you see that stuff happen, the prophets just lay it on the line. Here's the deal. All right, this is what the Lord has said. But he tells him a parable. And what's incredibly interesting to me about parables is they have this unique way of making us think. Right? Almost a third of Jesus' teachings were told through parables. Because a lot of times, if you're listening to a, if a teacher, if Jesus came up to you, now if Jesus came up to you, I'd hope you would listen. Let's just say a teacher comes up to you and a teacher says, you did this. A lot of times we're going to rationalize, we're going to try to push it away. Oh, no, no you, you got it wrong. That's not really how it happened. But if the teacher comes up and tells you a story about two people, knowing you're one of the people in the story, but you don't know that, and the teacher comes up and tells you a story and says, hey, there were these two people, and here's what went down, and this person did this, and this person, and this person stole this person, and all of a sudden you're like, that is not right. Like, I just cannot believe, you know, I mean, you read the, the parables of Jesus you often, I mean, we, we see what's on the other side of them. We see what's really happening. But if you're listening to Jesus tell these parables, a lot of times you're empathizing. You're like, I can't believe that person would do that. And then when Jesus says, well, here's the real meaning, you're like, oh, that person is me, right? Like you, you realize it, like the, the rubber hits the road. And so that's exactly what happens. Nathan comes up to him and all of a sudden those motives begin to bubble to the surface. Nathan came to him and said, there were two men in a certain city, the one rich and the other poor. The rich man had very many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing but one little lamb, one little ewe lamb, which he had bought. And he brought it up and it grew up with him and with his children. It used to eat of his morsels and drink from his cup and lie in his arms. And it was like a daughter to him. Now there came a traveler to the rich man. And he was unwilling to take one of his own flock or herd to prepare for the guest who had come to him. But he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. So that's the parable. And you can, you can, it's not too hard to read between the lines and see, just, you can, you know, get some takeaways from the parable. One man is rich, one man is poor. Very clearly, David's the rich man. And clearly, Uriah didn't have much. He was not a wealthy man. One had flocks, herds. The other had one lamb. Right? It's, which, if you read through the lines, it clearly says that he had one wife. 
And he was very faithful to that one wife. David, on the other hand, had many wives. And then if you read a little further, it says, The rich man clearly used his flocks for food and income, while the poor man kept his lamb as a pet. Like, he just, he wanted to care for his, his lamb, if you will. And so, if you look, read between the lines, Uriah very clearly loved his wife. So here you have a man in this story. Now you're, now you're picturing the, the deeper side of the story. Now you're picturing behind the scenes. The, the veil is being pulled back a little bit, and you can see into Uriah's life. He's got a wife, a wife he cares about, a wife he's loyal to. He just has one wife. He's not a man of means. He doesn't have much. And now you've got this other guy, this rich man who's got seven wives, who's got lots of money, who's got, really can have anything he wants. This man's away at war because David sent him there. And now David sees Bathsheba bathing and says, I want her too. Bring, bring her to me. And the, the, the parable, the unique thing about the parable, it says this traveler comes to town. I don't remember what verse it's in, but it says this traveler comes to town. And, this, and it's such a great picture of temptation. It's such a great picture of, it's the traveler was passing through. You could have said, the traveler could have come in, you could have been like, keep on going. There's no room for you here, right? Just but go ahead and go. It's a traveler. That's how temptation is so often, right? Temptation comes in and you can either cook it a meal or you can tell it to go in its way. You got no place here. You look in the car, you see drugs. You're like, guys, I got to go. But that's not what I'm about. Or you do what I did, you get in the car. And then you, you kind of just get a little closer. Well, maybe I can just hang out a little bit. Maybe I can just have a little relationship. Maybe I can just do this or do that. And before you know it, you're a lot deeper than you ever wanted to be. And that's, that's the picture you're getting with the traveler. It's just passing through, and the traveler could have kept on going. But instead of finding comfort with one of his own wives, David wanted something from Uriah. At the end of the day, here's the deal. If you look at it, David sacrificed Bathsheba, Uriah, his own family, those 17 men, their families. They all had families, probably, we don't know. Think about the number of people who were affected by David's sin. Sin never affects just one person. It's extremely rare. I'm sure you could probably give me an example, but it's extremely rare for sin just to affect one person. And just as the rich man in the parable had sacrificed the poor man's lamb to satisfy the traveler, David did the same thing to Uriah. Verse 5, then David's anger. So he hears this story. Nathan finishes his story. And of course, as often happens in a parable, you're like, I cannot believe this person would do this. And so David's irate. Then David's anger was greatly kindled against the man. And he said to Nathan, as the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die. He shall restore the, to the lamb, restore the lamb fourfold because he did this thing and because he had no pity. Now, restoring the lamb fourfold, is, that's what you did in the law? When you stole something from somebody, it was restored fourfold. So he's basically saying, this man should be killed. Not only should he restore fourfold, like the law says, he should die. Now, death was not the penalty for stealing something, but David's like going above, emphatically going above and beyond and saying, this man, he's got to die. And he's not, what he's not realizing, obviously, is this parable is about him. And he's about to, all right? And it's about to get really uncomfortable. So verse seven, David, or Nathan looks at David and says, you are the man. All right, now put yourself in David's shoes. Can you imagine what is going through his head? You are the man. A year's worth of sin, a year's worth of deceit brought to the service, surface in a single moment. And if you're David, you know, you're kind of thinking, all right, I thought I could cover this up. I thought I could hide. And he realizes you can hide your sin from those around you. You can never hide your sin from God. You can hide your sin from those around you, but you can never hide your sin from God. And here's the thing. If you think about it, God is going to pursue you in a lot of different ways. If you are a follower of Christ, you are a believer in Christ, and you are in sin, the Lord is going to pursue you. He's pursuing you anyway, but he's pursuing you if you're a follower of him. And he's like, we need to restore this relationship. Like, I want this relationship with you restored. And so for us, for David, it came, God's word came through a prophet. 
For you and me, everybody sitting here today, God's word could come to you, that conviction could come to you through a sermon, through the scriptures, through a friend, maybe the rebuke of a friend, the rebuke of a family member, somebody pulls you aside and says, what you're doing is not right. And God's going to use those. God's going to use those people because no matter what method he chooses, his goal is to pursue you. That, that is his goal. And some of you might be sitting here today and deep down, you're dealing with unconfessed sin. Secret sin. Just like David. And you're the only one that knows it exists. Just like David. And you hear Nathan, or you hear me, <laughs> and it says, this is, this is the picture. When you're reading scripture, this is not me. And here's what I want you to hear. This is not me condemning you for your sin. I don't know what it is. This is the scriptures speaking truth into your life and the Holy Spirit of God using those to convict you, not to condemn you, but to restore your relationship with him. So some of you, as I'm speaking, you are actually hearing me say, you are that man. Because the Holy Spirit's pressing on an area of your life that you know is there. And you're the only one that knows it's there. Or maybe you're hearing the Holy Spirit saying, you are that woman. And, and, and again, I want to make very clear, here's the beauty of it. It's not to condemn you. Yeah, there's a rebuke in what Nathan is saying to David, but the ultimate goal is to point him back to the Lord. If there is sin in your life, is there a sin in my life? And, I, and I, here's, let, me, let me say this. Let me say it this way. We all sin. Agreed? We all sin. I'm talking unconfessed, unrepentant, I don't really care about it, sin. That affects your relationship with the Lord. And we all know it does, and we all know that, the, the, you know, that, that it's there, because what happens is, as a believer, if you sin, you feel that conviction, right? The very first time. And then the second time you say, I'm going to do it anyway, that conviction gets a little less. You do it again, that conviction gets a little less. And that conviction gets a little less. And every time you... And, but six months go by, you don't even feel nothing. That's because that relationship with the Lord has been affected, and so when God pursues you in the ways that he pursues you, whether it's the preaching of the word, whether it's you reading the word, whether it's the Holy Spirit convicting you, all he's trying to do is say, hey, clearly our relationship is affected. I want it restored. I want to walk with you. I want you to walk with the Spirit. I want you to walk with me. I want us to do life together and clearly you got your own thing going on. Right? And so that's, the Lord is, I promise you, he's pursuing all of us to restore that relationship. Verse 7, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I anointed you. So here's God speaking through Nathan. I anointed you king over Israel and I delivered you out of the hand of Saul. I gave your master's, ho your master's house to you and your master's wives into your arms and I gave you the house of Israel and Judah. And if that was not enough, this is just striking. If that was not enough, I would have given you even more. Picture the heart of a God who says that. I have a relationship with you and yet you're going somewhere else. If you just come to me, I'll give you whatever you want. David, I gave you whatever you wanted and if you had asked me, I would have given you more because that's how much I love you. That's how much I care about you. Why have you despised the word of the Lord to do what is evil in his sight? You have struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword and have taken his wife to be your wife and have killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. Basically, David, I've given you so much and I would have given you more. C.S. Lewis has this book. Well, he's got lots of books. But in this one particular book, he's talking about sin. And he's talking about our pursuit of sin and why we pursue sin and why we kind of get in the muck and the mire and you know, what, what we're actually looking for and the joy that we think is there. You step in David's shoes, I guarantee you he thought there was going to be a lot of joy in his decision. And maybe there was momentarily. But the next day, and all the decisions, and all the deceit, and all the lying that happened after that, I promise you, he had took no pleasure in. It was a burden that was on him. And so C.S. Lewis is talking through sin, and talking through our pursuit, how we think it's going to lead to joy, but in reality, it's very, very momentary. And here's what he says. He says, we are, this is C.S. Lewis, we are half-hearted creatures, fooling about with drink, and sex, and ambition, when infinite joy is offered us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because we cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. 
Verse 10, now therefore the sword shall never depart from your house because you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Thus says the Lord, behold, I will raise up evil against you and out of your own house and I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor and he shall lie with your wives in the sight of the sun for you did it you did it secretly but I will do this thing before all Israel and before the sun and you got to imagine David at this point is just like whoa like that's 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 heavy that's overwhelming and just like David had betrayed Uriah's marriage David's son would betray his father's marriage And just like David had brought the sword on an innocent man, so would his sons bring the sword on one another. And there would be discourse and there would be fighting. And we're going to see that when you see Absalom. We're going to walk through all these different kind of the fulfillment of these things that has been told to David. And then he says, he finishes by saying, you have done this in secret, but I'm going to bring it to the light. Mark 4.22 in the Gospels, Jesus says, for there is nothing hidden which will not be revealed nor has anything been kept secret, but that it should come to light. So the question, I think for you and for me, is not do we sin, because we all sin, right? We, we struggle, we mess up, we screw up, we do things. That's not the question. The question is, what do you do after you sin? This is personal. Everybody in this room, ask yourself, what do I do after I sin? When you're confronted, do you try to hide it? Do you try to blame others? Do you try to rationalize it? I mean, we've all been there in certain situations, right? I mean, it's really easy to do. Well, they did this and they did this. I mean, if you go to my house and listen to my kids, it's like, you know, it's crazy what we try to do to blame other people. But here's the deal. What does David do? He repents. Verse 13, David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And here's what I love about David's statement. He doesn't say, good talk. Let me think about this and I'll text you later, right? Or I'll, I'll, get, I'll get back to you. Like, I, I appreciate your concern. This is probably what I would do. I appreciate your concern. Um, let me go pray about it. Let me, let, me, let me think about it, right? He immediately recognizes the sin in his life and immediately does something about it. He immediately repents. He doesn't like quietly confess his sin and hope that nobody finds out because we're all guilty of that as well. All right, he confesses his sin. I love this. Not only to the Lord, but to Nathan. Now, that's not required to confess your sin per se to Nathan, but let me ask you a question. Why, when you are struggling with sin, do you see any value in telling a friend? When you are struggling with sin, do you see any value in telling a friend or a loved one? I remember I was probably two years into my relationship with Christ, and there were, like, I had confessed my sin. The Lord and I, we had quiet times. I mean, daily, we were going through all this stuff. We were, I was reading the Word. I was reading books. I mean, I was pursuing Him, and I just constantly had guilt that was just in my head. Satan was constantly bringing things from my past to my head. And like for a year or two. And I knew these things were forgiven. You could tell me all day long they were forgiven. I knew it. But there were certain things I'd never told a soul. Like just, man, things from my past. And I was like, ain't nobody's business what I did. Ain't nobody's business what went on. This is between me and and God. Right? And and there's some truth in that. There is some truth in that. But I remember one night I I I was at a church service. And this speaker was speaking. And he was talking about in the context of confessing sins to a friend. Not because that's the way they're, they're forgiven. God forgives sin. But he said more for, along the context of accountability, for, you know, transparency. And when the service was over, like this whole, he's talking this whole time, when the service was over, I like beeline for the front. He's like, if anybody wants to come down, and it wasn't like a big confession fest. It was just like, if you want to talk to somebody, maybe go in a back room, you can pray with somebody. Like, if this impacted you, let's do this. And so, I mean, I would beeline down there, and it was like straight Catholic priest style. I took this guy in the back. I was like, let's go, buddy. He sat down, and I was just like word vomiting on him, like everything from my past. Like, all this stuff that I've been struggling with, I've been weighed down with, stuff I knew was forgiven, but stuff that for some reason, I just, it just, he's like, let's pray about it. Let's pray about this right now. And I told him, I just can't get it out of my mind. I don't know why. And he says, let's pray together that the Lord would just help you. And I, I, I can't explain it. Sometimes I'm embarrassed that I, I care so little about those sins today. But they were gone. I mean, 
gone. And I'm like, in, uh, I want to make very clear, I'd already been forgiven, but there's something to be said about your willingness as a believer to be honest, open, transparent, and accountable to other believers. One of the reasons I get up here, you're probably like, man, I know way too much about your life, <laughs> right? I mean, you guys in here know probably more about my life than, you know, my, my parents know about my life just because I, you know, I'm, I try to be very transparent, very honest, very open because I want you to learn from the places I've screwed up and the places where I think the Lord is moving or has moved. I just want you to benefit from that. Like that's, there's, there's no secret here. We're in this together, right? One another's love one another, care for one another, bear each other's burdens. Like we are in this together and I want us to be a church family that's comfortable with that. I want you to go to a friend that you can be transparent with, you can be accountable to, because, you know, there's something to be said. If, let me say it this way. If you don't tell, sometimes we say, I don't want to tell other people because I'll just sort this out on my own. I got this. Nobody else, nobody else's business. Nobody else needs to know this. And in reality, what you might be saying is, I don't really want to give up this sin. Maybe. Because if I tell somebody, that means I'm accountable to them and they're going to hold me accountable and then I might really have to quit. A lot of times the reason we don't want to be accountable to others is because we, we struggle with that. So let me be blunt for a second if I haven't been blunt enough already. <laughs> Do you have friendships? Do you have relationships where you're challenged and accountable to other believers? And if you don't, I would encourage you to get those. One of the reasons we do small groups, one of the reasons we're going to kick them back off in the spring and have a lot more for people to get involved in, one of the reasons we do supper clubs and stuff, is just it's not just for social. It's for you to get to know each other on a deeper level so you can pray together, you can study the word together, you can share with each other, you can be accountable to each other. Like that's, that's, there's so much about that that's important. So David, here's the thing, David, you don't see much about what he did in 1 Samuel, but if you go to Psalm 51, you see all that he did. Psalm 51 is his prayer of repentance. Turn to Psalm 51. So, and you're like, well, how do you know this is a prayer of repentance? That seems weird. Well, it says it right at the top. All right. <laughs> a Psalm of David when Nathan the prophet went to him after he had gone into Bathsheba. So this is his prayer of repentance. Psalm 51 is his prayer of repentance after Nathan confronted him. Psalm 51.1, have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity. Cleanse me from my sin, for I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. I love it because there's no blaming others. There's no rationalization. He's not trying to explain away what happened. He's just like, I screwed up like, and I need you. This true repentance. When you're explaining it away, when you're trying to like blame it on other people, it's really not repentance. This justification. You're just trying to justify it. So that's what he's doing. And he goes, you know, he goes that complete opposite direction. Verse five, behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin did my mother conceive me. Like I've had sin issues since the day I was born. Verse 6, Behold, you delight in truth and in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. And you read that word hyssop. It's mentioned three other times in Scripture. Someone pointed out to me a very important third one after the first service when I said two. Um, it's mentioned three times in Scripture. It's mentioned once in the story of Exodus where they come in at the Passover and they take the hyssop and they dip it in the blood, which is important, and they put it over the doorpost. you remember that? So that's one mention. Another mention is with leprosy, for cleansing leprosy, which at the time was like this disease that nobody could cure. Right? It was the uncurable disease, much less sin. And they were talking, it was talked in the context of cleansing leprosy. And then the last time is when Jesus is hanging on the cross. It talks about hyssop. Whenever they were talking about the sponge and the liquid, they were talking about hyssop. Those are the three times it's mentioned. So David's talking about it. He said, purge me, purify me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. And you think of all the times it's used in Scripture. You know, in the Passover, when they were putting the blood above the doorpost, when you're cleansing leprosy, the uncleansable disease, which we could think of as sin, and then in relation to Christ hanging on a cross. 
That, that's the imagery you're getting. Purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. And the Jews would have taken that in, that hyssop, and they would have just been like, wow, that is so powerful. And we have somebody as believers. Like for, for David, he's like crying out to God, God, cleanse me. Like I know I need you. I know I can't do this alone. Cleanse me. But here's the thing. As believers, we have someone who cleansed us. Am I right? We have a Savior who died on the cross for our sins, for that same sin that David committed, sins, plural, that David committed. Someone died on the cross, Christ, the Creator. Someone in David's own line, one of his future sons, if you will, was hung on a cross and died for his sins and died for our sins and gave us a, the same clean heart that he is desiring. All right, verse 8, let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Let me ask you a question. What was it about Bathsheba that David wanted? Truly, truly. Beauty, power, wanted to take advantage of her somehow, a moment of pleasure. Like if you, if you kind of back up and just think 35,000 foot view, what did David really want? And I'm sure all of those factored in. But in the end, his temptation had very little to do with any of those things. It had to do with his heart. Just like me as a kid in college, struggling to walk with Christ, heart not with him, not, not walking with him, not praying to him, not seeking him, not being in his word. My heart was far away from him. That's, I mean, I, I can't speak for where David's heart was, but he was no longer, I mean, let me say it this way. His temptation had very little to do with Bathsheba and everything to do with his own heart. He was seduced by the beauty of a woman because he was no longer seduced by the beauty of God. And that's a very important thing for us to remember. He was seduced over here because God had come off the throne. Because temptation starts here, it goes to here. We see, we think, we lust, we act. It takes, it takes root in our heart. We take our eyes off the Lord. We put it on something or someone else. And now we obsess over them or obsess over it. And all of a sudden we want to go here, we want to go here. And the Lord's less important, and less important, less important, and boom. And that's why we talk about spiritual disciplines. That's why we talk about memorizing the word. That's why we talk about being in the word and praying together and all this stuff because it just keeps your heart where it needs to be. Paul Tripp says this. He says, sin is a matter of the heart that expresses itself in the behavior of the body. Your body physically goes where your heart has already gone. I thought that was like, wow. So how do we deal with sin? Well, the best way, put your eyes back on Jesus. Put your eyes on Jesus. We don't overcome sin. This is important. We don't overcome sin by trying to love it less. We overcome sin by loving him more. Does that make sense? Like I would talk with college kids so often in college ministry and you'd talk to them and they were struggling with fill in the blank. And you'd say, well, you know, they'd, I mean, well, how are you doing it? How are you dealing with it? What are you like? How's it going? Like, oh, I just wake up and I'm like, don't do that. 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 And by lunchtime, I've done it. And I was like, it's because you've been thinking about it all day. <laughs> like if you woke up and said, Lord, I need you. I need you getting to your knees and pray and read your Bible and do all these things. It might turn out differently because your focus is somewhere else. Um, verse 11. Cast, not away, cast me not away from your presence. Take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me, such a beautiful word, such a beautiful verse. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. All right, we're going to fly through the rest of these. Verse 13, the Lord has also put away your sins. So that con his confession is finished. He's repented. He said, Lord, I've sinned. I've sinned against you. Verse 13, the Lord has also put away your sin. You shall not die. So you're no longer going to die, David. Nevertheless, because by this deed you have utterly scorned the Lord, the child who is born to you shall die. Then Nathan went to his house, and the Lord afflicted the child that Uriah's wife bore to David, and he became sick. David therefore sought God on behalf of the child, and David fasted and went in and lay all night on the ground. And the elders of his house stood beside him to raise him from the ground, but he would not, nor did he eat food with them. So as the, the Lord said, this little child gets sick. 
And David knows what the Lord says. He begs anyway. He pleads anyway. He's fasting. Just say, Lord, you know, spare my son. But on the seventh day, verse 18, servants of David were afraid to tell him that the child was dead. For they said, behold, while the child was yet alive, we spoke to him and he did not listen to us. How then can they say to him, the child is dead? He may do himself some harm. But when David saw that his servants were whispering together, David understood that the child was dead. And David said to his servants, is the child dead? They said, he is dead. Then David arose from the earth and washed and anointed himself and changed his clothes. And he went into the house of the Lord and worshiped. It's a really strange, in my opinion, turn of events. I feel like his servants, like, okay, what just, what just happened? You were beside yourself here. Now the child has died. Now you like get up and go do, you know, go do your thing. And here's the thing. When the child was sick, he was begging and pleading with the Lord to heal him. Like, can you imagine what David is saying? I mean, picture, we just all, you know, we have no idea what David was saying, but you can picture it. Like, I, Lord, my son is innocent. He did nothing. He's a, he's a baby. Like, I don't understand why you would take him. He doesn't deserve to die. I'm the one that sinned. Take my life. Lord, I am the one that deserves to die, not my son who has done nothing. If you step back, you can see the imagery. You can see the imagery pointing to the cross. David sinned and deserved to die. But someone else died in his place. Literally, the penalty of his sin. Literally, if you look at the Jewish law, adultery, murder. The penalty of his sin was death. But he didn't die. His son died. And one day, his, a son born in his line, Jesus, would do the same thing, would die for the sins of the world. So the child finally dies. David knows, you know, the answer is no. The Lord didn't save this child. He went to the house of the Lord and he worshiped. That's what he did. I, I probably would have been a little angry. I don't know. I, I, I don't know if I was in his shoes, what I would have done. But instead of getting angry, he goes in the house of the Lord and worships. Like he recognizes, okay, Lord, you're just, you're merciful, and I'm going to go worship. Right? And even in the midst, it's mind-blowing to me that even in the midst of sorrow and tragedy, he worships. As a father, I hope I never have to experience that. But I hope if that other happens, that I would worship. It's a, it's a, it's a troubling thought. In the, in, the, in the face of a tragedy of losing a child, he worships. Because he knows who's in charge. He knows where his hope is. And he also knows he's going to see that child again one day. All right, keep going. Verse 20. He then went to his own house, and when he asked for food, um, and when he asked, they set food before him, and he ate. Then his servant said to him, What is this thing that you have done? You fasted and wept for the child while he was alive. But when the child died, you arose and ate food. He said, while the child was still alive, I fasted and wept. For I said, who knows whether the Lord will be gracious to me that the child may live. But now he's dead. Why should I fast? Can I bring him back again? I shall go to him, but he will not return to me. It's an important verse. I read a lot of commentaries, did a lot of study, prayed about this. I don't know that we'll ever know for certain, but most commentators, most scholars point to this verse and say, I shall go to him. He may not return to me here on earth, but one day I shall go to him. I think it's a, it's a great encouragement for those of you who have lost children. Verse 24, then David comforted his wife Bathsheba and went into her and lay with her and she bore a son and she called his name Solomon. And the Lord loved him and sent a message by Nathan the prophet. So he called his name Jedidiah because of the Lord. So Bathsheba gives birth to the son, a second son by David and they call his name Solomon. And God calls him Jedidiah, which means loved by the Lord. And I'm not gonna read the rest of the passage, but what happens is David finally gets his act together. You know, this whole thing started because he should have been away at war. This is where, this is where all his people were. And, and it even started, verse chapter 11 even said, in the days where they would go out to war, David stayed behind, got himself into some trouble. So you'll see in the rest of the passage, if you read through it, it's only probably five, six verses. Joab calls David out, like he's restored to the Lord. He's restored to his position. Joab calls him to fight. He goes out to battle and they, they do what he should have been doing all along. And that's how the chapter ends. So as we close, a couple questions. Where do we go from here? 
Like, what do, what do you what do you make of this passage? What do you what do you apply? How can you can you apply some of this to your own life? What do you, what do you take with you throughout the week? And for starters, I think it's a great reminder. This might sound a little crass, but I think it's a great reminder that we're never, no matter who we are, we're never more than a couple bad choices away from our worst moment, apart from God. If you're trying to do it in your own strength, in your own power, and under your own, you know, your own decisions, doing what you want, God aside, I'm just going to worry about my list, my good things I do, the bad things I can't do. I'm not going to read the word. I'm not going to be in the word. I'm not going to pray. I'm not going to have a relationship with God. You're never more than a couple decision, bad decisions away from your worst moment. If this can happen, I think that for me, when I got done reading this passage, if this can happen, if there's anyone that you would think is immune to moral failure, it's King David. Seriously, if you step back and think about King David, somebody who killed Goliath, somebody who God spared every time he turned around, somebody who wrote three quarters of the book of Psalms, he wrote scripture. You know, if there's somebody who would be immune to this, I would think it would be King David, but sometimes even the strongest faiths aren't immune to the temptations of Satan. Don't ever think that you're too strong. There's no way Satan can get to me here and try to do it on your own. Don't ever try to do it on your own. Always walk hand in hand with the Lord. And then those moments you find yourself in a situation you never thought you'd be in, like me at 23, or David in this passage, repent. Humble yourself. Lord, I don't know how I got here. I don't know how I let this sin go on for this long. I've been hiding it for so many years. And whenever we were preaching this passage, the Holy Spirit said, you are that man or you are that woman. I knew you were talking to me. And I need to repent of that. And I'm going to repent of that. Because I think it's that, that important. Cry out for forgiveness. And, be, and here's the thing. Be encouraged that God gives it freely. If, you're, if your main impression of this story when you leave is condemnation, that it's just a heavy story. God wants him to forgive, wants him to do this. You kind, of miss, you kind of miss the point, right? The point of the story, in my opinion, is that God gives freely. Gives mercy, gives grace. Gives, I mean, David murdered, he raped, he lied, and God forgave him. If that's not an encouragement to those of us who are stuck in the muck and mire, I don't know what is, all right? So maybe you're sitting here today and you said, oh, look, I've, I've never experienced forgiveness. Like I've always stood at an arm's length from the Lord because I just, I, I, don't, I don't know. I just, I never, I never trusted him. I never thought he would forgive me for all the things I've done. Be encouraged today that the Lord loves you and he's pursuing you and he wants a relationship with you and he died on the cross for your sins and my sins. He rose again on the third day and he says, look, I want a relationship with you. I want to walk through life together with you. I want you to abide in me. I want you to learn from me. I want you to show the fruit of the Spirit to those around you. I want us to be able to bring others into my kingdom. You are here for a reason and that reason is because God's pursuing you. So stop searching everywhere else and come home. Let me pray. Heavenly Father,